Oh, it's great to be with you. Um, allow me to just jump right in and make some opening comments before we pray, but I do want to read our passage for today, which opens up the series in 2 Corinthians, and this is uh, 2 Corinthians, and we're just looking at verses 1 and 2. And it goes like this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all of the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before I pray, my compassion goes out to Pastor Kurt, who last week tackled a very difficult passage in the closing of the series in Ezra. And in comparison, the two verses that I just read seem rather pedestrian compared to what Kurt had to deal with. So uh, thank you, Kurt, for taking one for the team. And with that, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this amazing letter that Paul wrote. And it isn't just a single letter, it's a series of them. I thank you, Lord, that you have worked through the church for ages in admonishing, in reproof, in encouragement, in challenge. And this letter is no different. In the way that you've used Paul in this letter, may we understand that it is still written to us for this church today. May we learn from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Teenagers! What does that conjure up in your mind? They are the physical embodiment of a rapidly maturing man or woman. However, mentally and emotionally, they seem to be, to me at least, a jumbled mix and a tangle of neurons firing off in all directions. Those teenager, teenage years to me seem like a giant bin of Legos and completely unsorted and all thrown together. And you know what I'm talking about. Any family that has had kids throughout the ages has one of these bins. You open the lid and you see two by four blue bricks. See one by four yellow bricks. One by one studs, occasional clear windshield, a wheel, a little green stem, heads without body, and hair without heads. And for some reason, I've always admired the hair that you can just click onto a head for some reason. <laughs> you look at this bin of mishmash and you think two thoughts. One, what a mess. And the other, what potential. It's going to take a while, but I could literally build anything my mind thinks up from what's inside this bin. It's going to be utterly frustrating in the entire process, looking for that exact piece that I can't seem to find to complete a certain part, but you give me enough time and patience and I'll get there. And that's about the most positive metaphor that I can come up with to explain my own teenage experience and these blessings that Heidi and I have in the form of teenagers at home. And as a football coach, I feel like I am the adoptive parent of 80 teenagers for three months every year. Unsorted Legos are about as gentle of an image as I can conjure up for these people. And I'm sure you have your own thoughts on the matter. But there's a specific moment in my own teenage life that I remember like it was yesterday. I'm not proud of it, no, quite the opposite. 
Maybe that's why I remember it. I was sitting at the dinner table with my father and my mother. I was the youngest child, and my two older sisters were already out of the house and on their own. And for some reason that night, again, I'm not particularly proud to to speak of this, but it, it, it exemplifies something. I was in a mood to pick a fight with my father. My father was a hardworking man. He was a carpenter by trade who was previously a home builder, hardware store owner, and even the mayor of the village of Westmont. He wasn't an angry man, but if you pushed his buttons, his inner bohemian would emerge and he would pop. It was a sight to behold. And for some reason that night, the teenager in me was in a mood to poke the bear to see, to get the old man to pop. I was the first child in my family to go to college. I was smart. I thought smarter than my dad on paper. Father didn't have a high school diploma. He grew up in the latter part of the Great Depression, and he was working full-time by the age of 16. And for some reason that night, I was taken over with an arrogance and a pride, and I wanted my dad to know just how smart I was compared to him. I'm, I mean, it's, I'm absolutely embarrassed sharing the story, but I, but I continue on. I proceeded to go on and compare myself to him. My accomplishments, you almost see this picture before us. My accomplishments, my awards, the science that I knew, the computer programming languages, you name it. I was literally out of my mind. The pinnacle teenage moment. I told my dad that he didn't have any of that. He didn't even have a high school diploma. <laughs> my, my, my mother, who was probably more volatile than my father was, just stared at me in stunned silence. I was waiting for the eruption, and it was coming from one or both at that table. My father's face was turning red as he ate his dinner. And when I was finished with my moment of insane self-aggrandizement for the purpose of getting under my father's skin, my father put his fork down, looked up at me, bore his eyes into my skull. I said to myself, here it came. Oh, those teenage years. In a lot of ways, when I think about that scene right there, I think about the way the Apostle Paul dealt with this church, the church of God in Corinth. I think about that loving, yet at times frustrated relationships that parents have with their teenage children. And here we are looking at the first two verses of 2 Corinthians with an idea in our mind of what's, what's in store for this letter. That is, if, if we have read it in the past... And perhaps you've also read 1 Corinthians, Paul's first surviving letter to the church. And these two, these two letters together paint a picture of a church that's grappling with fits of immaturity and yet also has moments of great vision and potential, just like that teenager that I, I painted the word picture of through Legos. Corinth was a remarkable city. And its inhabitants knew it. It was a bit of a phoenix rising up out of the ashes of destruction, having been destroyed by the invading Romans in 146 BC. And its population was entirely killed or it was enslaved. The great Cicero called this the event, the extinction of the light of all Greece. Fast forward to the days when Paul arrived in Corinth in 50 AD, roughly 200 years later, and the city rivaled Athens in both size and its influence. Modern estimates pin the population at that time of about a million people. 
Corinth was positioned strategically on an isthmus between two waterways, one that reached west to Italy and another east to Asia. And the rapid growth of the once ransacked city was really the sole result of the emperor Julius Caesar recognizing Corinth's strategic location. And in 44 BC, in his effort to repopulate this ransacked city and to economize it, Caesar chose not to settle Corinth with a Roman army as was the custom. Instead, Caesar immigrated freed slaves, along with repopulating the city with people from Syria, from Egypt, and Jews from Judea. And in a matter of less than a century, Corinth became an industrious and ethnically cosmopolitan region. The revenue generated from transporting goods across the isthmus from one harbor to the other was added by revenue that was generated by the Isthmian Games. These were games that took place every two years, in stark contrast to other games that took place every four years. People were hungry for sport, and the Isthmian Games were their answer. And so take rapid growth, take a conglomeration of cultures, take extreme wealth, and you get Corinth. You also get a city with a sordid reputation for sexual immorality and a distribution of wealth that edged towards the extremes. You had those who were ultra-rich, as well as a large contingent of the population that lived in abject poverty. One traveler to the city uh, reflected on the women of Corinth having the goddess Aphrodite, guardian of the city, and the men having the god Famine. It's that, that stark difference between feast and famine. Corinth's rapid success as a city created these stark economic disparities. Well, Paul, like Caesar before him, well, he recognized the strategic importance of Corinth and However, whereas Caesar saw it as a military and an economic advantage, Paul saw it for the advantage of the proclamation of the gospel. With two other cities, Ephesus and Thessalonica, the three cities formed a geographical triangle of influence that spanned the Aegean region. And of the three, Corinth was the most difficult to penetrate with the gospel due to the distractions of wealth, extreme poverty, idolatry, various pagan theologies, and a culture that was engaged, as I said previously, in sexual immorality. This letter that we have, that I read the greeting from, the salutation, is likely the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church over a four-year time period. We read in 1 Corinthians 5.9 that Paul referred to a previous letter that he wrote by which he says this, he says this in 1 Corinthians 5.9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. If that was a previous letter, then what we have in the form of 1 Corinthians would be the second time that he would write the church. Then twice in 2 Corinthians, we see two references to a third letter. Here's one of those references in chapter 7, verse 8, and it reads this. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. And of course we have 2 Corinthians, which would make this the fourth known time that Paul has written the church in Corinth. 
We also know from Acts 18 that Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth establishing the church with others. So I ask this question, why is this, all this context important? It's clear that the church in Corinth needed leadership. It needed instruction. needed direction. Admonishment, correction, encouragement. He's written the, the church over a four-year period four times. Clearly, Paul had his work cut out for him to help this fledgling, afflicted church mature. And it appears as evidenced by his pen and his presence that he was up to the task. So in light of this context, the knowledge that we need to walk away from today after reading Paul's salutation and how now his fourth letter to the church is this, and this is our aim for our talk today. And from this text, this is what we could derive from. It says that this is our aim, that that God chooses people to establish and lead the church in difficult places and into maturity, a maturity that is characterized, that is characterized by an outpouring of God's grace in his peace. Let me read that aim again because it applies to us today. God chooses people to establish and lead the church in difficult places and into maturity, A maturity that's characterized by the display of God's grace and his peace. I would argue that in the manner in which I describe Corinth, it doesn't all sound that different from Chicago. Or dare I even say Wheaton. Chicago went from a population of fewer than 200 to currently 2.6 million in 200 years. It is one of the most ethnically diverse cities in the world. Compare the neighborhoods of Englewood with that of the Gold Coast, and you see, like Corinth, sharp differences in wealth. Well, what about Wheaton? Consider its own growth. How dramatically different the ethnic and demographic makeup of the city has changed just in the last 20 years. And while Wheaton on the surface doesn't display some of the more unsavory characteristics of Chicago, sin abounds here nonetheless. Wheaton is not immune from the effects of pornography or idolatry. We must not for a moment believe that Wheaton is so radically different from Corinth that the words that are going to be preached from this pulpit by my fellow brothers in this sermon series do not apply to this church. They do. Paul is telling the church of Corinth to grow up, grow in maturity. God is calling College Church into a growing maturity. Paul knows that if the church of Corinth fails, Corinth fails. If College Church fails, and if there isn't another Bible-believing church operating in our stead, Likewise, Wheaton, too, will fall into the same hopelessness. The church, a mature, filled with God's grace and peace, gospel-proclaiming church, is the greatest hope a city could ever ask for. It's the only hope a city has. If that doesn't light a fire inside of each enough as to understand why the church matters, your wood is wet. With the context of the letter behind us, let's now look at the text. Verses 1 and 2 form a greeting here called the salutation. And here the salutation follows a traditional Greco-Roman letter-writing structure 
from A to B, then C. And here we have from Paul and Timothy to the church of God in Corinth, and then what follows is grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so looking at this, we have a structure of of three divisions, the first being part A. Paul, this is verse 1A, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. In this part of the greeting, we see an emphasis being revealed by dint of Paul's inclusion of some key words, words that allude to some of the issues that he plans to address with the church in his letter. One such issue was the questioning of Paul's apostleship which he defends later in chapters 10 and 11, and is a significant point of emphasis in this letter. This might be why, in later salutations of Paul's letters, letters that he writes later in his ministry, namely Galatians, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and then Romans, he includes the title of apostle in the salutation, where earlier letters didn't have it. And he doesn't freely extend that title of apostle to to others. Timothy, in this case, he calls him our brother. Apostle, from the Greek word apostolos, literally means sent ones. In the strictest sense, it was a title afforded to those who were personally called by Jesus into the world as witnesses for him. And in the narrowest definition, it is a title reserved for 13 men, the 12 disciples, including Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, and Paul, who was called by Jesus on the Damascus Road. Thus, it's it's Jesus who's the commissioner of Paul in writing this church by nature of Paul's title of apostle and by God's will. If proclaiming Jesus' saving power from from sin is the mission of the church, well, then it's Jesus who has the authority behind calling a person to lead the church in this mission. Paul makes this point very clear at the onset because it's a topic that he's going to address later in the letter to those who question his apostleship. And who's with Paul? Timothy, our brother. It's of little value to include the name of somebody in a greeting of a letter that's not known by the recipients of the letter. And so we go to Acts 18, verse 1 through 5, and we see how Timothy is is part of the missionary team of Corinth. And it reads this in Acts 18, 1 through 5. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to lead Rome. And he went to see them, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. I I, I love... Luke's description of Paul's primary activity, occupied with the word. Paul is occupied with the ministry of the word now that, now that their supporting personnel and the likes of Silas and Timothy have arrived and are serving the various other needs of the church. 
And as a result of the pre-existing relationship between the church and Timothy, we can assume that it is to Paul's advantage in including Timothy's name in the greeting. And by including Timothy in the greeting, it speaks to the fact that whatever Paul says from this point forward, there is a witness and a supporting voice to the various things that Paul addresses in the letter with the church. Paul's not alone in his opinion or his observations of what's going on in this church that needs to mature. There is a well-known other who is now party to this missive. What is not obvious in this part of the greeting, but I believe is absolutely clear by understanding some of the context and the history of the relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth, is that this letter now, the fourth known iteration of Paul addressing the church while he's not present, Paul is demonstrating patience and perseverance while dealing with the church. What Paul brings up with the Corinthian church in First and Second Corinthians, as well as what's alluded to in the two other letters that are, are not easy topics to discuss. Get a, get a, listen to some of these topics that he brings up in these letters. Division in the church, his own authority, idolatry, disorderly worship, a dispute rising about the resurrection from the dead, suffering and weakness, just to name a few. Paul is so ever patient, ever steadfast, pointing this church towards the need to mature. This takes us now to our second division, part B of this salutation. Verse 1b, it says, To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Here we find another emphasis. This one's a bit of an irony. Paul calls this body of believers the church of God that is at Corinth. Well, based on the various topics that I just brought up that Paul addresses with the church in previous letters and he's about to bring up with this letter, this is not exactly a stellar example of a church of God. Not only was the church divided, Corinth was an utterly godless city. This divided, fractured community of believers in this godless city were plagued with various factions from false apostles who were Judaizing in chapter 11 to others who were sexually immoral in chapter 12 to others who were alluded to having been involved in the worship of local cults, chapter 6. <laughs> Paul Scott shows a lot more restraint than I would. A more apt address to this group and perhaps something I would be tempted to write myself in a more cynical moment of weakness would be something like, to the group of immature, self-absorbed, prideful, syncopats in, in Corinth. It reminds me of the hot letters that Abraham Lincoln wrote where he would vent wildly his frustrations and his emotions only to stuff them into a drawer never to see daylight. I am certain, although it's just conjecture, I am certain Paul felt this way about this church in Corinth. But church, here's the point. Paul, like any good leader, chooses to focus what's on what's good what's right, what's pure. He deliberately sets a vision and aim for this church in his greeting that they are the church of God that is at Corinth. The church is the bride of Christ. The mission of the church is to bear witness to Jesus. The opening of this letter is not to an individual, 
Rather, Paul's language is a vision of what this factious, divided body could become. A raging witness of Jesus by a unified body of believers in an utterly godless city. I am certain that there are many things that happen in this church by some that drive others nuts. And I am certain that in the history of this church or other churches where you may have come from, that things have been done to you by leaders or others in the church that has caused pain and hurt. We need to be in a healthy church, and we need to avoid unhealthy ones, but, but, but hear me out. Healthy churches can still hurt you because us sinful people are in them. This fact doesn't change the purpose and the mission of the church one iota. The church is about proclaiming the gospel. A healthy church is about proclaiming the gospel. And we always need to see the church as Paul sees this group of believers in Corinth, as the church of God that is at Corinth. We need to consistently see the church in the full potential of this vision too. And notice that Paul extends the salutation not just to Corinth, but to all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. This vision of the church is not limited to just Corinth, but the entire region. It's another bit of irony here in that the name Achaia literally means grief or trouble, a name the Romans assigned to it. I can't help but wonder if Paul had a smirk on his face as he's instructing the scribe to have the greeting include, and to all the saints in the whole of the land of trouble. Paul might have gotten a little bit of a dig in there. That's entirely speculative. I, I would never do anything like that. And in our final division, part C of the salutation, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin abounds in Corinth. And where sin abounds, restlessness follows. The only complete solution to unhinged sin and hellish restlessness is the grace and the peace afforded by a complete and utter surrender to Jesus. Paul, in his salutation, takes this common greeting structure used throughout ancient letters and fills it with a uniquely Christian language pointing to an eternal hope in Christ. Grace and peace can only manifest because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Corinth's only hope is Jesus' grace and peace. Just as Wheaton's only hope is Jesus' grace and peace. The church that demonstrates God's grace and peace is a mature church. Corinth at the moment is not there. But Paul, again, paints the vision of what the church could become. We have to ask ourselves every day, as a church, if we exhibit God's grace and God's peace. It's a healthy exercise. Corinth was a city with two harbors, one in the Gulf of Corinth to the east or to the west, and the other the Saronic Gulf to the east. Harbors are, of course, safe havens for boats that are docked. The waters are quiet and still, 
and safe in a harbor. This is a good metaphor for a church that is filled with grace and peace. Not all churches are. I like to believe that College Church is. And I'm sure it was Paul's desire to see the church in Corinth display such grace and peace and be as much of a safe haven for those embroiled in Corinth's sinfulness as the ships sought the safe haven of Corinth's harbors. Is this church a safe haven against the restlessness of greater Chicago? In applying this short passage, this greeting to our world, our city, and our church today, picture, picture this scenario. Think about a world for a moment without love and affection from God towards his people, and think about a world without the love those who know Christ have for others, that we have for others. Such a world is without grace and without peace. Fortunately, that's not the world we live in, and thank you, Lord, No, God loves all of us in this room who are made in his image. Those of us who love God and love others because God first loved us, we're the church. And we experience his grace and his peace. But if you don't know God personally, you're not experiencing the grace and the peace that Paul is talking about here. What you're instead experiencing is Corinth. Immoral, violent, greedy, poor, restless, idolatrous, self-absorbed. Imagine somebody just completely self-absorbed on social media without Christ. This endless, endless process of seeing all this stuff hit you and reacting to in anger that's, that's Corinth. So, why is Paul writing his fourth letter in four years to the church that is in Corinth? The church of God that is in Corinth? Because the only hope for people to escape the effects of living in a hellish, godless city is through the work of a healthy, mature church pointing people to Jesus. And the only people, I'm sorry, I should say, the only hope for people to escape the effects of living in a city like Wheaton where somebody just a few weeks ago took their own life on the railroad tracks right behind me through those doors, the only hope is a healthy, mature church that points those people to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus today, would you allow the people of this church to show you the way? If you're part of this church, are you willing to grow in maturity so that together as a church we are the safe harbor for this community that we were called to be? Are we willing to be patient and persistent with those who are less mature, like Paul was with Corinth? Are we collectively able to be like Paul in being patient with others and helping them grow in maturity? When my father put his fork down at the dinner table and looked into my eyes, to my utter astonishment, he wasn't about to explode in anger. And what I will always remember is one of the most uncharacteristic things that he ever had done in his life 
He patiently and quietly responded that, alas, I was right. He didn't hold a candle to me. He defended his lack of education because life required him to bring home money for his family and explained that he's been doing that ever since. He said a few more words I don't remember, but I do remember that I saw a tear in his eye. My mother didn't respond, and the two of them never spoke about that scene ever again. As for me, it stopped me in my tracks. That day, my father helped an immature, self-absorbed teenage boy take a step towards maturity, just like Paul does with the teenage-like church of God that is at Corinth. And that is the example that Paul sets forth in this letter that from this point forward we have the privilege of studying together. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I'm thankful that you are patient, filled with grace and peace. And through the acts of an unbelieving father in my life and through the acts of the proclaiming Wheaton College student that came into my life that shared Christ with me, it's amazing how you work in the lives of people to bring us to maturity. And the job is never complete nor never finished. And may we as a church catch a vision for what a mature church looks like as the only hope for the city of Wheaton and the broader Chicagoland community. And may we take this mission seriously and powerfully. And it is in your mighty name that I pray this. Amen.